welcome back to the Accelerators Podcast. We are radiation oncologists, Drs. Matt Spraker, Simil Parikh, and Anna Lauschus, and we're bringing you oncology news and views with guests from all over the field. Note, the discussions on this show are not medical advice, and they represent our own opinions and not those of our employers. And now, on with the show. Yeah, so 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 I wrote this down um, as so so basically my my feeling about the whole thing is that when I did when when I changed jobs I had a very different view I didn't really do a search right because you know you were very uh, generous to connect me with like the perfect match and so I like you know that went ahead right away and I didn't so I didn't do like a big search or interview at multiple places but when I was like thinking about changing jobs I I felt like. I had such a different mindset of what I was looking for and how I was approaching my life compared to when I came out of residency. And I think there's some really good resources for like how to evaluate a practice and how to think about job searching. But I think all of those resources gloss over... Sorry, let me put it a different way. I think all those resources are quite technical. And I don't think that they speak as much to how people are supposed to decide what they actually want to do and how they're going to be happy as a radiation oncologist working independently after residency. And so that piece was like missing. And so I sort of wrote this down as like a, like just to reframe this whole discussion and make it a little higher level, like 30,000 foot above, you know, above the, just the technical components of like, you know, like what's your contract? What's how many patients are you treating? What machines do they have? Like that kind of stuff. Right. And so I sent you what I wrote down. It's definitely a draft. Yeah. And it's an ambitious goal. I was like, you know, how to be happy as a radiation oncologist, <laughs> which is like, which is like a ridiculous goal because it's it's just really hard to to like quantify that, and it's sort of related to that lost episode that we recorded that I think we shouldn't release because it's just gibber. Like we were, I think we were just talking and trying to figure out how to put into words what we're both thinking, right? I mean, it's really hard to put into words, like, like you know, I'm, I'm super happy in this new job in a new city. And I was actually talking to my wife at dinner last night. We went out and we were, I was like trying to like, I was like, how do we put into words like why both of us are so much happier here in Denver than we were in St. Louis? And it's not like, it's a very personal thing, right? So it's not like talking about one city or place or job being better than another. Yeah. It's like for both myself in work and outside of work, things are so much more aligned with what I want. And so that I was, you know, and even now I'm struggling to put it into words, right? It's just a hard thing to talk about. I think, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, it could be said like how to be happy as a radiation oncologist. It, it, it doesn't have to be as just how to be happy in life, right? Like <clears throat> keeping the standard things that we all have to do. We have to work. Uh, or if we don't work outside the house, we have to keep a house. Um, we need shelter, we need food, we need like basic things. Right. And then how do you get to that point of where it's happiness? And yeah, it is really hard to define. It's really hard to judge your job in comparison to others. Uh, I think there's a difficulty with human beings to openly tell you how they feel about their circumstances in life until you get to know someone well, or if it's just like an open book type of person. Like me, like everybody knows what's going on with me. I can't, I, I can't help but just tell you like this sucks or this is good or whatever. Like I, I wear it on my sleeve, but there is some difficulty in finding out people are not happy. I can say like, you'll know, we'll, we'll hear like X is leaving X institution. 
And then you'll be like, oh, that's so strange. Like they were there for a long time. They seemed happy. And we have no idea what was going on and what led to their leaving a job, like for you or whatever, or anybody, what, what led to that. And so that exploration of like, when you get from one to the next, are you going to actually improve your happiness or are you just trying to get out of a bad situation and because of whatever structural or constitutional issues you have, you you may continue to be unhappy even if the situation changes. And I think that's the hard part is like there's an internal component and then there's the external component. Yeah. And the internal component like can change, right? Like that definitely happened for me. And one of the things I was also talking about last night is like, was did it change or was I like lying to myself about what actually I wanted? And now I'm just more willing to be honest about it. And, and I, I don't know that you can ever really know for sure. So I'm going to release what I wrote down eventually, um, or I'll just put it out there for people to give feedback. This is absolutely a draft, but I'll be curious to hear your thoughts on the stuff that I put here. Um, And we'll try to move through it in a timely fashion because there's a lot here. Um, but basically what I did, you got it, right? Like yeah, you have it, yeah okay. I, I read it. Yeah. Um, so that, so what I put down was first some basics, assumptions, facts, and opinions. I think that are like really good to have as a starting point. And the goal again of this is like, oh, I am proposing that if you're like a new grad or even anywhere in your career, but you want to like make a change, like this is a good like way to frame and think about like how to get to a place where you're happier than you are now. And so the 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 assumptions, facts, and opinions about radiation oncology that you need that I think are important to understand are first that radiation oncology overall has really good compensation compared to um, uh, many physician jobs and also uh, work hours, right? Mm-hmm. And so there is some flex, there's a good chance that you can find a job that will support your family financially to the level that you need it to, given all the conditions of your financial situation. And then because it has uh, uh, the ability to have pretty good work hours or even part-time work, you can, you can use that to like get to happiness if that's part of it. So that's one. Second thing is there's a low number of opportunities per geographic location. So that's always true. It's a small field. If you need to live in a certain city, there's not going to be a, a, a numerical high number of jobs. So, uh, third thing is that there's a range of practice models. Something I didn't recognize when I was coming out of training is that there's so many different day-to-day jobs that are true for a radiation oncologist. Even if your main job is a clinical job, it can be very different depending on your practice. The fourth is labels of academic community and hospital employed are mostly not helpful. I still people see people using them a ton. Um, but I think that the line is so blurred at this point that they're only helpful for very specific points and not really for as a high level approach to like what type of job you're looking for. And then the last thing is that um, the components of the happiness that I'm going to talk about. So I'm going to propose this happiness as a quality of life measure for us. The components of it are are it, they're composite and those components that contribute to happiness are can change as you go through life. And so I think that did happen for me at least a little bit. And and so that might mean that you're working in a job and you might be unhappy now, even if you were happy five years ago, just because things have changed with your own priorities. So those are my like, that's like the starting point. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it gives you a framework to kind of assess, assess things in yourself. Yeah. And so, so for happiness, so I'm proposing it's like a quality of life measure for yourself, your happiness. 
and it's a composite that's made up of like a couple of different uh a couple of different like sub sort of sub measures it, just like we have quality of life measures like you'll have an overall like you know they have the the epic one for prostate and there's like bowel and and like yeah. you know, sexual function and so and i think that you, these are like different components of people's happiness as an overall measure and so the first one i had was technical occupational and i don't think we should talk too much about this because there's really good resources out there and this is what people talk about a lot and it's basically the economic aspects right i mean and and this is like base salary I actually put dollar per RVU, which is, a, I don't know if it's an official metric, but it's something that I've heard you talk about. And I really like it because it captures both the money you're paid and how busy you are, right? And those yeah. things can slide. And I think there's good ways to be happy all along that. And then the third is like benefits, right? So like PSLF, if you have loans or CME. Um, and I have a couple of things that I wanted to just point out really quick. So did you have any thoughts about like that that economic part that I yeah. put? The- yeah, I think... Um- so I think when looking for a job initially, not everybody does this, but I think we may be overvaluing starting salary and salary in general. Not, not to say you should take less than your worth. Absolutely not. I, I've just found in recently in this, in this region I live in, and without <clears throat> naming the particular institutions, there are multiple academic centers around here. And some of them pay very well and some of them don't pay as well. And one of the lower paying institutions, I find that almost every faculty member there is happy, is fulfilled, um, has been there a long time, and rarely do you get complaints. And then there's another one where you know they're, they're typically paid much better and there's a lot more unhappiness or at least vocalized unhappiness. And so I think that correlation is we we do have to be careful. Like you can continue to make more money and there will not be a linear correlation with happiness. Um, I know personally speaking, I'm, I'm near after making compared to being a partner in practice and then, uh, you know, employee at other places, I'm, I'm sort of at the middle or lower end of what I've earned in my career. Um, and yet I'm the happiest I've been. And so if I would have said 10 years ago, if I was making the exact amount of money I was making now, 10 years ago, I said, huh, I'll probably be unhappy then. That must mean something went wrong. Um, but I, I'm here where I'm at now in absolute dollars and in inflation adjusted dollars, I'm making less money. But my mind is uh, unencumbered with some of the stresses I've had in the past. I love the people I work with and I would, you know, I would not, I don't, I mean, I hope my bosses aren't listening, but I, I wouldn't need a raise to be happier. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't tell them that. No, but I was, I was going to say that like, it goes back to, to like that first assumption that the, like overall, the lowest, I mean, this gets a little tricky, but yeah. the, you know, the general lowest rat on compensation is going to be high enough that the average person is going to be financially happy, yeah. right? Because it's, it, we're not talking low numbers here. And I think that um, it's just like you said, I, you know, I was just texting with a friend yesterday and we were talking about salaries and like the, the person I was texting with is making a lot less than me. Um, but, but he, you know, they, they love what they do. They're super happy. They have, um, you know, they have a little bit less financial uh, requirements, I think, than I do. And they also have a spouse that works and makes good money. And right. And so I think everyone's situation is very, 
um, unique. And that's why I think it's never just money. And if people feel like they make less than their peers or their friends, but they're super happy, they should be totally fine with that. I have no, I think, I think it's like totally fine because again, the numbers we're talking about are high enough that people would be, you know. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, as much as we can believe the numbers, I mean, if we can believe it, and I'd say for this discussion, we should, if the median salary or mean salary is in the 500 to $550,000 range, uh, that is very good. That is a lot of money. And it, there should be no debate on that. Now, if you're working 80 hours a week, maybe it's not a good a deal for you. But if you're working a typical practice, 35 to 50 hours a week, and the median or mean salary is 50, you know, that, that amount, um, you should not be thinking you're, I, I can't tell someone how to think, but claiming you're underpaid is not going to go well with a lot of other specialties who also work hard, train many years, yeah. um, and, you know, are also very skilled at their positions. Yeah. So that, that part's, I think that's important to know, like we're comparing amongst ourselves. Yes. We have friends making $1.2 million doing right up, but your pediatrician buddy is not. And, yeah. um, they're probably working more hours than you. They're seeing a lot of patients and they're valuable too. Um, and, and so the, the, the way we're paid and the economics of it, it's not, uh, fair necessarily. It's not equitable. It doesn't have logic to it, but we are lucky to be compensated fairly well for the hours we work. Yeah. Yeah. And along those lines too, like that job that you mentioned where someone's making over a million dollars, I actually would hate that job because what it takes to, to do that, it's not the job that I'm looking for um, in terms of work hours and load, caseload and all this kind of stuff. And and so I think that that that's that's kind of the point, right? Is that it's I, I like to tell people it's it's, just, it's not just money, but it is. <laughs> it's about feeling fairly compensated. Fairly, so along yeah. those lines, one of the things that I had was just really quick for work-related mm-hmm. benefits. Um, a, a major change for me was going from one organization to another was just the way that physicians are treated. And it's like little mm-hmm. things, right? So my new place has um, free food at work for, yeah. for doctors. And so you just like eat free. And the parking is free for everyone, which is awesome. Um, and so including the patients. And so that kind of stuff, like, again, it's hard to put down on paper, but that kind of stuff, I think looking for places that clearly value physicians, try to retain them, try to give them things that make their job and day work day easier is important because I think it just, it wears on you over time. If you have the opposite where every little thing, they're just making it difficult. Yeah. And the food at work is such a, it's a great example. It's a, it's a small perk, right? It's yeah. not, we earn enough money to buy ourselves food. We can bring in lunch if we want to. Uh, I will, you know, give my, one of my old employers, shout out Banner Health provided excellent food all through the day. You literally, I had a friend who um, was somewhat helpless when his wife was out of town. And if, if she was out of town, he would eat all three meals at Banner. And honestly, like they had like Indian food on certain days. Like, and it, the cost to the hospital, it, it, there's a, there's a number. It's not nominal. It's not completely nominal. And it comes out of your paycheck in some way, but I don't see it and I don't know it. And it makes me really happy if I'm starving and I had a late day to run over there at 1 p.m., 2 p.m. and get a sandwich or salad or whatever. Like it was great. We had, I mean, full on salad bar, kombucha, fresh, yeah. fresh juice. Like right. it was really good. And that it made me, it did make me happy. 
it was something I talked about with my wife. Like, like yeah. now she worries about me eating, but then it's you, like, it, right. It's like, it's like, is, is the hospital or practice or organization willing to, um, you know, spend a little bit of money to do something that's a clear morale boost for their physicians. And we all, it, it's not a secret that there are places that are not willing to do that. And, and, I, and again, you, you have to pick among these priorities, but that to me had a much bigger impact on my morale and day-to-day life than I would have expected or, or said four or five years ago when I was coming out of residency. The, the next part for the technical occupational part of the quality of life measure was does, making sure you understand what you're paid to do. And I put this as the E of the FTE, right? Like, so what effort, what is the effort? And I, I had a quote here that I made of myself, made myself that said 80, 20 is probably a lie. Yeah. Um, I, I, if you just pulled, you know, traditional academic jobs where you're 80% clinic four days a week, and then you have one research day, if you pulled people, how many of them are doing research on their research day and there's no clinic on that day, uh, I, it's going to be pretty close to 0% because things spill over. Right. And so, so I think, um, you know, this is probably more well-known to people and don't spend too much time on it, but it's like, is it a clinical job? If it is, what's your disease mix? How busy are you going to be? What's the clinic and workflow structure? And do you have influence? That's huge. If your clinic is miserable to work in, you're not going to be happy in your job. Um, technology, I think it's outside of the scope of this 30,000 foot view. I, I have been counseling residents to look for a really good SBRT program because it's a good marker that you have like strong physics and dosimetry and probably you can do all the things that you want to do. Um, again, you don't need it, but it's something to look for. If it's a research job, like do your skills match your expectations? If it's 20% of your job, can you do that research in the time? If it's 80% of your job, um, what does that look like for you? Are you going to be able to run your lab? And my point is, is that if your time commitment to do your job well is going to go outside that 100%, you're going to be working nights and weekends, right? And that's one of the biggest things that like nobody really like ever just said directly to me. It's We kind of talk around this. But the fact is, is that some of these jobs, I think the expectations on people is that they have to work outside of work hours to do everything that they need to do. And that can burn people out really quick is my my take on that part. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the 80-20 thing, I've never been part of an academic center, but I've had like 80-20 jobs. And uh, yeah, it's not. It's not 80-20. I mean, especially if you look at the contracts, like if it says 80-20 and your RVU is your threshold is 9,000. And 9,000 is the median for a full-time equivalent doctor, then you're doing a hundred slash 20, right? Like you're doing, you're doing five days of work and four days clinically. And then you have that day, even if it is truly protected from yeah. clinical care, you still have to get the work done. It's not like, you know, every, if, if every time you did that, you add those delays over time, like that means your patients are being delayed over the course of the years. Um, in my, my current job, I am a 1.0 FTE, but I have an admin day. And what's fascinating to me is like, they haven't told me what I'm supposed to, like, I'm, I'm, you know, I have to be available for work and I, and that day does get used to cover partners. So we cover each other using those days, but when I'm not covering like today, what am I doing? I I actually have a lot of stuff that I do for my job on the admin day. I I catch up on, on charts, which we all do. It's like kind of an open thing that we talk about. But I serve on some committees and that time is there uh, to, for me to serve on committees inside my hospital. Uh, I work on some workflow stuff for my clinic and I do it all on the admin day. And going from a job where there's not time to do that stuff 
to one now, the biggest difference is I just, I, I have a time where I stop working and I don't work past that time. I just don't work at night. I don't work on the weekends and I do all of this stuff. And I feel like my job, my, my hospital or organization has recognized that you actually need one day a week to do all these little things that are outside of your full booked clinic, like eight to four, whatever, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, the admin day, it is important. Like if people are evaluating jobs, like to, to get an idea of what that means specifically. I, I, I had a job where it was not, we were not being treated like adults. And there was this idea that it's your admin day and there is a doctor there in the office other than you. And you still had to come in for a few hours to show your face. That's what the chief said. And I was like, well, that, that doesn't help patients, you know, like that's the thing. So he said, you want me to drive, get dressed, drive in instead of like doing everything that I would do from my own home office. And I, I think we have to value admin time or that time that's not in the clinic. It doesn't matter if you're available and uh, able to do what you need to do. Um, and that kind of thing can cause, cause you discomfort too, because it's like, Hey, I was told I was going to get an admin day. I thought it'd be able to run errands, you know, if I don't have anything to do or like, hang out with my kid or whatever, but instead it, it really isn't It's just like, you're going to, if you're at work, you're seen, you're visible, unless like you lock your door and stop answering texts and pages, like, yes, people are going to talk to you and ask you. For yeah. things. And so it's no longer an admin day. And so that minute your chief, you know, whoever, wherever you work, like whoever your boss, your manager, your chief or administrator is like, try to get a sense of if they treat you like an adult. And I think a lot of these don't yes. are going to hinge on whether you're not, whether you're treated like a grown up uh, versus treated as a child or a teenager. And I think uh, a lot of medicine, unfortunately, if you're employed uh, delves into the treating you like a child or a teenager. I mean, I, I, I just saw a change in our, our staff here. Like they're not physicians or whatever, but um, they finally took out the, the punching out for lunch. Like, so you didn't have to like run and punch out and then make sure exactly 30 minutes later, not 36, because that's one tenth of an hour. And you're gonna lose your, what they're doing yeah. now, we got an email today is automatically 30 minutes are deducted from your time card. And that's it. There's no, yeah. it, it, it assumes good intentions. It assumes you're not going to cheat on lunch. It assumes that once in a while you will work through lunch, but <clears throat> this is a type of a grown up. Uh, solution to that type of problem, I think. Yeah. And it's, it's, and the other thing I wanted to just add to that is like, you know, I I don't feel like my friends that are outside medicine even have this issue because like, it's assumed that you're paid to do a job and they have to give you the time to do the job within the hours that you're committed based on the pay. Medicine is the only place where we like actively and openly talk about that. Like, do you see that thing? There's like a tweet about primary care doctors. If they do everything they're supposed to do in a day, it actually takes 26 hours or something, (laughs) right? It's like, you cannot sign people up to do more work than they have time to do in the time that you're paying them for. And so that, that I think that the accepted, the acceptability of doing that in medicine is a challenge. I think it contributes to burnout and you, you know, you can't negotiate this stuff, but like when I'm looking around at jobs, like, are they recognizing that you actually have stuff to do outside of your clinic hours? And do they give you time to do that? Yeah, exactly. And do they treat you like an adult, like you said, to manage your own time? Yeah. And that's, I think that, I think it's getting better. I think, I think so. I think COVID has led a lot of places to reevaluate how they look at work and what work is. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. 
Well, I was going to say, because I wanted to keep it moving. Yeah. I don't know if you had other, this was the no, technical no. occupational part. So this is like what's written down. Um, I do reference that Zorsky and Trifoletti article. I shared it on Twitter today. I'm going to link it to this because I, I do think it's, so we talked about, it's kind of, it's pretty opinionated. There are things that are either dated or wrong or both um, and may not apply to a lot of jobs, but I think it does a really comprehensive overview of technical aspects that you might look for in a contract that would shape economic features of it or time, what are you paid to do, caseload, that kind of thing, right? So I, I'm gonna, I think that's like a good place to dive deeper on this if people want to. Um, I don't know if you have anything to add on, on technical parts of the contract. No, no, no. And I think like uh, Nick and Dad, Dan did a wonderful job. It's an outstanding framework for looking at things. Keep in mind there there are errors, um, and yeah. and you can tell that it was written by people from the academic community because there there is a little bit of misunderstanding of uh, community contracts and community medicine in there. So just keep an open mind and you use that. It's a good tool, I think, to go through what what's important and how to evaluate things. Yeah, lot lots of it's really good. I think yeah. The, so the the second component of the measure, the quality of life happiness measure that I had was was fulfillment from career goals. And it's like, what do you want to do, right? So economic is like, what are you paid to do? This is like, what do you actually want to do? And there could be overlap. And again, this I'm trying to be very 30,000 foot because it, you should think about this regardless of if you think of yourself as an academic or a community or whatever. It doesn't really matter because a lot of this overlaps. And so for me... One thing I had, I wanted to say at the very top of this is that it's very reasonable to be a radiation oncologist and do clinic, do what you're paid in your contract, and then say, I don't want to do anything else. I want to do everything, take the rest of my time and just be a regular person that has hobbies and families and does the stuff they want to do. Um, I can't remember if I put this on a podcast, but I was at a job interview. On, um, I was on the interviewer side. We were recruiting and we were out at a dinner and so one of my partners had had brought up the question, like, what percentage of your personality is a rat? Are you as a rat on? I can't remember if this was in our last episode or if I've actually said this on the show before. But one of my rat on partners that I'm super that I respect a ton. She's a fantastic doctor, considered herself 90 percent a mother and 10 percent a rat on. And I thought that was like so cool. And I, and I, I actually sort of felt bad thinking that four five years ago, I actually probably would have considered myself 90% rad onc. That's not for me. You can have, I don't think there's a good or bad along the spectrum of like what you are compared, you know, like of, of your job compared to other parts of your personality. But I just wanted to say at the top of this, that it's okay to just be a rad onc four or five days a week, work your clinic, take great care of patients, and then do whatever you want with the rest of your time. I think that's fine. Yeah. And it, it, in, it can be not fine too, but it should be clarified to you at the at the interview or during the the process of hiring because it, it just reminds me of like office space. Like, if you want me to wear thirty seven pieces of flare, I'll wear thirty seven pieces of flare. But if I say wear one piece of flare, I'm going to do that. And yeah. this this idea like that you should have done this or you should be doing this or you should be doing that. Well, unless it's in your contract. And it's provided to you during feedback that this is what's expected. This is the job. Then don't, don't have that expectation. And as an employee, it's very hard at the beginning to say no. And I don't encourage you saying no to everything when you right. start your job that first year, but be very clear that like, 
I'll be happy to take this on. It may take away from some of my clinic time. Maybe do you want to block out a few hours for me for this project? Or, hey, you know what? That's a great idea. Is there any way I can get some sort of compensation for it? And it's tough to ask these questions to your boss, but the fact is they're asking you to do something that's outside of your contract. And it is completely reasonable to ask for something. We're not going to get everything we want. Like I do, I have to do admin stuff and it's not my job. And I talked to my boss about it. I said, Hey, can I get a little bump or something? And he's like, times are tough. Budgets are tough. It's not easy to just renew a contract. He did sign for three years. And I said, you're right. And I was like, what can you give me? And it was a small gesture, but he's like, if you want to go to a few extra meetings this year, we'll get you coverage and we'll pay for it. That's the sort of things we can do. And that's really nice because I don't, I'm not an academic person. I don't have that much CME. I don't have CME money. Like it's, it's nice to be able to do that without having to pay out of pocket. And it's not exactly what I wanted, but they were able to give me something. And, and that's the other thing you have to be accepting that like, it is a negotiation. And if you don't get exactly what you want, right. Don't complain about it. They gave you something. They, they could have given you nothing too. Yeah. So. Well, and, and along those lines, like you could do something, what I was trying to get across with this, you, you could do nothing. You could ask for compensation and that would move it up into like the kind of occupational part. What I was trying to get across here is that I think it's good to recognize that we as oncologists can be, can get fulfillment from doing these things, even if we're not paid for them. But you got to be really careful because people will abuse that, like you <laughs> yes. just said, yes. right? And so, so I think like you, re- if you're not getting paid, then it's something you are basically doing as a volunteer effort, and you better get some fulfillment out of that. And I think a lot of people, at least I inferred when I was coming out of training, I inferred from the way people would talk that like a good radiation oncologist does their clinic plus more, whether it's <laughs> research or something else, and that's how it should be. I disagree with that. I think you. It's okay to not do more. And if you are doing more, you you better be paid for it or it better offer you some fulfillment. And so I wrote down like things that are fulfilling for people or that I could imagine being fulfilling for people. At the very top, I did put scientific research because I think it's an important part of being an oncologist. Yeah. And it, it's front of mind for a lot of people as they're coming out of training. And so like presumably if you run a lab, a, a huge component of your job financially and economically, technically is going to be running the lab. And so it's yeah. fine. Trials, informatics, DEI, all this stuff. But you don't need an academic job to do some of this stuff. And what's really important to understand is that in a lot of academic jobs, you're not being paid to do it. You may yeah. be doing it outside of your work hours. And unless you need some special resource that a university can offer, why not do it in a community job? You're doing it outside of work anyway. Who cares, right? It's like like you're doing it on your free time no matter what you're doing. So why not why not do that? Yeah, I had I had teaching, uh, clinical trials, like leadership, being an influencer, this kind of stuff. Um, I had non-traditional academic things like quality improvement, workflow optimization, clinical programs. There's a lot of stuff that can be done in the community job that is traditionally considered as academic. And something that was never clear to me was just like, you you can do it in the community. You, uh, you're you doing it for free anyway. <laughs> if it fulfills you, uh, don't, don't let it stop you. Um, and so I'm going to keep talking because I think Simmel had to take a quick, he's got a call or something. So I'm going to keep kind of doing this as a monologue. And so I think that's my fulfillment part. And I think that if people have a much more open-minded kind of 
you know, approach to being fulfilled or, or recognizing these things as, as like offering fulfillment, then I think they can do it more outside of academics and not, um, and not only, uh, uh, view it as like an academic thing. Um, for people inside academics, I also just wanted to point out that like nowadays more and more, there is an opportunity to do things that might be fulfilling that really don't fit the traditional definition of research, but are still valuable. And so this would be things like being a reviewer for a journal, being an editor, serving on a committee. Um, it's so there's so many committees these days and ones that are even not related to societies that are just formed like through Twitter and stuff like that, that people can do um, and participate in regardless of the setting they work. Uh, you could be a podcaster. I, that's something that I've put more time into recently and it gives me fulfillment. We do it um, for free for the most part. And and um, it's something that I just do outside of my my job. Um, and then community efforts. I have colleagues now that I'm in this new community center and some of them have been in Denver a very long time and they spend a lot of time volunteering or doing things that fulfill them sort of as a physician um, but not as part of their job. Like they do, they might, you know, there's like groups that can volunteer for, they give talks, stuff like that out in the community. The last part of the uh, fulfillment from career goals, like quality of life section I had was uh, work culture and bosses. And this is huge. Um, the the work culture for me, I never noticed was, was uh, has such an impact on your quality of life. And what I mean by culture, I had three terms here. I had chillin, ballin, and studyin. I wish Simul here was to laugh at my bad joke, but basically, I feel like in radiation oncology, there's you know some practices that call themselves quote lifestyle practices, and what they mean is that they've set up the practice to prioritize um, time off uh, or making sure that you you know that your work or clinic days are maybe a little bit shorter, and you may accept a little less compensation because you're working less but you have like more vacation and things like that. Um, and things like having partners that can cover you, being able to go out of work. Uh, and and, and it, that might be something that is, is really important to you. Because again, if you go back to what percentage right on Kamai, if you consider yourself to be most happy where your, your personality and your interests lie outside of medicine, but you're still a great doctor, then it might be a good idea to join a practice that lets you spend time outside of medicine. That, you know, that that's that make sure that the culture is in line with what you expect. If you are financially wanting to do really, really well, and or if you have constraints that require you to make a high salary, um, then I think you want to join a practice that offers you the opportunity to have a high salary, which means being really busy, seeing a lot of patients, carrying a high patient load. Um, you can still do very high quality medicine, but if you're trying to spend, you know, only 40 or 35 hours a week in clinic and that you want that to be your whole job, uh, you're going to have a bad time if you join a practice that's expecting you to work 80 hours a week and see a ton of patients. And so I think sometimes there's a mismatch between that. Um, likewise, if you're if you're uh, wanting a very high salary and you join a lifestyle practice and there just aren't enough patients to get there, you're going to be kind of upset with that. And the last one I have was studying because it's like, if you want to be a researcher, you want to carve out time for research, you want to be a leader in the field, that's great. Make sure that the culture of the practice allows for you to be a leader in the field to do the research. If you join a ball in practice, I'm talking about my doing the goals of the match culture. 
if you're joining a practice and they want you to be balling and carrying 17,000 RVUs, but you want to be a researcher, you're going to be pretty unhappy because there's no time to do research unless you do it in the middle of the night then. And so I really think that people need to like pay very close attention to what the culture of the practice is and find out if um, it's going to match with what they're trying to achieve as a radiation oncologist if they're really honest with themselves. Yeah, I mean, if the, if the chairman themselves is carrying 10,000 RVUs, that just tells you about the culture of the yeah. place, right? Like yeah. administrators should be administrators. And um, I don't know if a chief's value is seeing that many patients and treating that many patients. And then it's going to rub off like, well, I'm doing this much and I'm the head of the department and you can't write a paper and give this lecture on your measly, you know, whatever, 9,000 RVUs. And it, it does need to be you know stated like you're right. It's a, it's a cultural thing. Like, I think you came from a place that was very busy. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a place that was also expected to do lab stuff and to do clinical research and to do committees and they're busier than I am or busier than I've ever been in community practice, which is wild because that yeah. means that you guys yeah. have time to think. And uh, it doesn't sound like everyone in academics has time to think. Yeah. Right. And I think, and again, it's like, there's there's really no judgment here. If you want to be really busy and work very hard and do all the research and run trials, that's great. There are people like that in our field that I am friends with and I like them. I think they're great doctors. I was unhappy in that job. And so that's, that's what that's like, that's the important thing is that it's a very personal thing. And I think what's cool about radiation oncology is that we have an opportunity to join all these different types of practices um, I mean, not not that many opportunities. We'll talk about that in a second. But but like we, you in theory could join any of these types of practices and achieve your goals because those are all out there. Um, the only other things I had under work culture, again, I wish I knew how important this was. But like who your boss is going to be, you may have one or two. I'm happy you referenced Office Space because I always think of that. I love that movie. Um, <laughs> but are they going to help you be happy given the quality of life metric that we're talking about here? Are they going to help you maximize your fulfillment from unpaid work? Are they going to have, you know, meet your financial constraints? Are they going to advocate for you? Because the reality is, is even in the best practice, there's going to be stressors. There are places where the cancer center is going to try to make you do things that are against your, I guess, your, your wishes or make you do uh, your job in a way that's not ideal for you. Um, is your boss going to advocate for you on your pay, on those work aspects, your quality metrics, or balancing all of these things, right? A good boss versus a bad one makes such a huge difference, in my opinion. Yeah, I think it matters a lot. And I think, you know, looking looking over the, the, the career I've had, it's just, it, it's really hard until you change to know if something is good, bad, neutral. Yeah malignant, uh, normal, whatever. It's, it's really hard because you, you don't know these things. And also internally, everybody has different value system. Uh, you know, participating in this discussion on student doctor about taking vacation as a radonc. And, you know, many people feel that it's very difficult to take a long vacation. And for me, I've been doing it for 12 years. I take, you know, I went to India and Japan this year in, in January or in January and April. And I think, intrinsically, if you ask me, I'm like, yes, this is a lifestyle oriented field. And then that other person who feels that they can't take a week off to go to Europe, they intrinsically feel that this is a bad quality of life job. And we might have the exact same job, but we just do things differently yeah. um, and have different 
um, ways of managing our, our time in the clinic or in the lab or whatever. Like there are people that can make it work and, and it, you could be in what you think is a dream situation and it would be somebody else's nightmare. Yeah. And yeah, vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's funny because you, you do travel a lot, which if I'm jealous of, that's awesome. And I think that it's funny for me because I, um, I, w- I was traveling a lot when I sort of started my new job. And I do feel like for me, for how busy I want to be, there is a limit of how much I can travel where I feel like it starts to impinge on my ability to like have a cohesive practice where I have continuity with everyone and see them enough. But like some people may want to be less busy and travel more. And, and so I think thinking about that push and pull, and again, just being very open-minded about, you know, achieving those goals is really important. Yeah. Um, the, the last bit, my third part is the life of work-life balance. This part is huge. And I thought, again, this is the third component of the happiness quality of life measure. And it's sort of like the first thing to even talk about this is you have to decide your work-life balance. I kind of blew that segue because we were just talking about that. Uh, but, but it's like, figure out your work-life balance. If you want to be someone who's working a lot to achieve certain technical, occupational, like economic goals or like research goals, whatever, then that's fine. Um, and, and you can work a lot and have that work be more of the balance. And likewise, if you want your life to be, you know, outside of work life to be more of the balance, you need to figure that out first. Once you figured that out, if life is a significant component of your happiness, then how important is your geographic location to your happiness? That's I think that's such a huge thing um, because it, it's uh, number one, and I, I can speak to this personally, but your partner's happiness is huge. Um, happy wife, happy life, right? Is what people say. <laughs> your uh, your your family support and childcare. I don't have kids, but I, I know a lot of people feel very strongly that they want to live near family so that they have support because they're because doctors are very busy. Um, if you're single or married, I think has an impact, um, for romantic relationships, because there are certain cities where there's just, you know, it's harder to meet people and and it might be hard to like date or things like that. And then regional cultures matter a lot. And so I'll just give my personal story on this life for me is a big part of my work-life balance. I enjoy my time outside of work. I have a lot of hobbies and do things that are not related to medicine. And I think when my wife and I moved to St. Louis, from Seattle, we had developed a very specific lifestyle in Seattle, uh, very outdoorsy and going to concerts and things like that. And I think we knew that we were going to sort of take a little hit there, um, life-wise. And you know, I don't think that I was really honest with myself about how much that would affect my quality of life. Um, and and it, it really did. Um, my wife is amazing and she, you know, she moved there with me and and we really, really tried to make it work, but it didn't. And I think that the minute we were honest with ourselves that it wasn't working and I started to look to go back to a city that had more of the things that we really love to do, like we got here and I think it became immediately apparent that I was lying to myself because it was just such a drastic change. Um, and, and so I'm happy to say we are where we are now and we hike a lot more and we're doing all the things that we like to do. And it it has a huge impact and she's noticeably happier as well. Um, yeah, I don't know if you have thoughts there, but that was like a really, uh, it was like a revelation for me, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we're, we're still navigating that, like the geography and the relationships you have where you live are going to make, uh, you know, make your partner and yourself moods change, um, I think the one drawback 
currently, you know, I, I constantly am evaluating my decisions. It's that although Detroit is home for me, it has not been home for 25 years, 24 years. And it's been really hard to come back here to um, manage our social lives because and it's a mindset because when I move somewhere else new and exciting, I want to make a bunch of friends. I want to check out all the restaurants. I want to do all this fun stuff. And this like coming to home feels like, well, I already kind of have friends here and I already know everything. And uh, like the energy level is different. So I think like, and that, that does impact our moods. And so we, we find ourselves, we do travel a lot more than we probably should with two kids because we have a lot of friends to see outside of Michigan. But these, these geographic considerations are not only important to you, but your partner and your, if you have children or, or dogs in your case. And, um, I'm sure your dogs are a lot happier in Colorado. And, I think uh, so. Yeah. Less, it's a little less humid for them. I think it's more yeah. sun. My dog loves the sun, so she just lays out there all day. It's pretty, yeah. I think, a- but, yeah, but, but I think it's, it's, it's like, you know, again, like I think there are people who do not care where they live because they have so much work and that work-life balance, and that's fine. I think that's a great thing. In fact, I know someone that made a move. And I joked with them before they did that I would never, ever move to that city. And they don't care because they're super happy in their job and, and they're super fulfilled by it. And, and they spend a lot of time working and that's what they want to do. And so I think that's great. But if you're like me and you're actually honest with yourself that you actually want to spend a lot of time also not working, right? And doing things outside of work that may be unrelated to medicine. If you move to a place where it's hard to do those things, it's going to be it's going to be a struggle. Um, yeah. Yeah. Hot, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, no. So it's, it's, it's really important. I mean, this, this stuff. And, and if you, if you do like your job a lot and it happens to be in a place that you don't love, that's, there's going to be a tension there um, yeah. because there's a lot of your time that's outside of work. And what do you know, what, what do I do? What do I do to fill, fulfill myself when I'm outside of work? And I, and imagine when that's the case, which is what happened to me in my last job, because all we had at that time was the job and it was very busy and rigorous. And um, I found myself being in a city I didn't really like having a very challenging job and it all the interplay becomes really, really challenging. And if you if you come home and your partner's unhappy with where you live and you hear about it all the time, then it's going to make your mind you know, be affected by that. You may, you may start having misgivings about the job, even though it's not the job, it might be the place or the city or whatever. And I think, yeah, like we're focusing on this, but I think as you grow older and develop your most important relationships, which is going to be with your partner, they, they need to be very intimately involved in these choices. Um, regardless of if they have a job, a paying job or not, that's not the point. Like this is your partner and you make, you need to make decisions. Um, yeah. And, and honestly, it's like what you said is exactly how I felt. Right. And, and again, like we're not talking about good or bad. It's just personal, right? It's, it's yeah. like, it's a mismatch between what you want and what you have. And I just want to emphasize to people that you can't, you can't pay your way out of this problem, right? <laughs> That's it, you, There's no amount of money that is going, like you can have a super nice house. We did, we did all this stuff, right? I did yeah. all these things to try to make it work. And it's just like, it, it, you know, you cannot pay your way into changing where you live. Yeah. Uh, so I think that you really need to be honest with yourself about is where you live going to allow you to maximize your happiness. Um, and, and money is not going to fix that problem. In no. my it, yeah. it, it, it'll help, but it's not going to, it's not going to completely solve it because right. money is finite. This problem. Yeah. 
is not going to be completely solvable with I did not have enough money to buy mountains to put them in St. Louis. <laughs> like, it's not like there was not a way. Yeah. So like that, that's just like a good example of it. Regional cultures I had on here because I know this is very important for a lot of people. I think if you're in a place where the politics or the culture or whatever is going to be make you feel not included or not welcome or not happy, that's a big deal. And I understand that that's becoming you know, more front of mind for people. And there's not really a lot to say here about it, but it's just, I think it's something to consider. Yeah. Um, the last two things I had were hobbies and housing. These are minor points because I hope people do have hobbies. I think it's, I, I've worked hard to try to capture them back. A medical school kills a lot of them. And so it's nice to like work hard to try to get some of those hobbies back is your job. All the, the, you know, is the technical occupational components, the fulfillment part is all that can allow you time and space and the ability to do the hobbies that you want to do. And then housing, actually, we, again, we were just recruiting. Um, it's not a secret that Denver has ridiculously expensive housing and some, a couple of applicants were very smart and they like, can I buy a house here with the salary that you're offering? Yeah. And you know, Denver happens to have some really favorable, nice uh, programs to allow new home buyers and physicians to get into a house for uh, really reasonable um, uh, deal. And the jobs tend to pay enough here to, to, to have people afford that. But I'd never thought about that at all. Right. And it's like, yeah. you want to make sure that whatever you're taking, so the economic component, the geographic component, is that going to allow you to get into a housing situation that you want to be in? And there could be someone out there that's a great radiation oncologist that wants to work really hard and they like to spend time at work and they don't care if they live in a studio apartment in Manhattan. And probably you can, I don't know if you can afford that or not on an attending salary in Manhattan, <laughs> but but either way, like that's fine for them. That would not have worked for me. Yeah. And so I think like one thing I thought about a lot when I was moving is like, are we going to be able to afford what we want, where we want in the city? And that was true for me, but I'm also four years out. Might not be true for a new grad, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's also, also if you have family money or your parents are going to help you out with it all. So that kind of stuff changes things for a lot of people that um, don't have that type of fortune or, you know, luck. Um, yeah. I, I think, you know, looking at what has made me happy, just like retrospect, looking at this and kind of piecing together things. I, you know, I would say I had two out of my four jobs I've loved, really loved the other two. I, I would say I liked, I guess. Um, but I, the two that I love, I look at what, what made me happy and what that does is allows me to make my list for my next, if I ever have a next, but what's important to me, because you look at what made you unhappy and what made you happy. I think the number one thing is a mixture of like autonomy to do what you want and to be left alone unless um, something unsafe is happening or um, toxic in the, in the workplace. Uh, and like, it just, it reminds me of a parenting book I read. It was about this lady who lived in France for some time and she noticed that the parenting styles were different and, you know, without getting into like the details of the book, but that she described it as like French children having of being allowed to like play in a large meadow, do whatever they want. And there was a lot of space, but there was a fence and you didn't, you didn't go past that fence, but you had a vast amount of freedom to explore it in that space. And it was like, you know, you'll make your own mistakes and you'll explore and learn things on your own, but you will not break these certain rules. And her comparison to 
American parenting was like the helicopter model where you're in a very small space and there's very big walls and you're really not allowed to do a whole lot. And it's a lot of rules and a lot of, you know, a lot of little things that make it difficult to grow and um, be the best that you can be. And I think that that really makes sense, like parenting, comparing it to management, your, your management of a job. Are they giving you some autonomy? Are you going to get to make decisions? Like, I, I still remember the anger I felt when I wanted to make a small, like a small note to give to my nurse to do all our consults on. It was just like, this is what a prostate patient needs. I need a PSA. I need MR, MPMRI. I need a Gleason score. This is the stuff I need to like have a coherent uh, conversation. And I was told I couldn't give that to the nurse. Um, even though this is a nurse that I work with daily because it has to go through corporate. And I'm thinking like corporate has this little to do that I'm making a prep sheet for my nurse and I'm told I cannot do that. This this type of thing drives you batty, right? This this $600,000 base doesn't make up for feeling like a child being told not to be able to do that. Or, um, you know, you're on your admin day and you didn't show up for enough hours or whatever, you know, like these types of things, these, that, that you're putting, you have very limited space. You have very limited space to breathe and it, it makes it hard. And so I think like autonomy is so important for me and also like leave me alone unless I'm doing something unsafe or harmful to my, my clinic. I think the other thing that I've noticed that's made me happy is um, having the administrators and the corporate, you know, upper level value you as an equal because we all have different skill sets and knowledge and what we bring to the table. And you, you've met my, my CEO, Joe's, the man just gets it. He knows how to talk to docs. He knows that his level of expertise, his expertise is people management. He's very good at that. And he can give me tips on that. He has no input on how I treat my patients. And I, I worried, you know, like, oh, I'm going to this for-profit hospital. Are they going to make me do 33 fractions on all my breast patients or whatever? And, you know, I, I mentioned my concerns about that. And he's like, similar. he's like, I have not trained in radiation oncology. If you say five fractions is what's best for a breast cancer patient, like, who am I to say? Yeah. Um, and there was never, and I've had places where the manager or the corporate would tell you about like that kind of stuff. And so I think this freedom uh this freedom for doctors means a lot. It especially means a lot to me, but I think that's super important. I think the idea of um, vacation, you know, like that was the discussion on student doctor, like, or time off, like protecting that time off, you know, we, we don't call it like, and that granted we're on different salary levels, but I'm not going to call my front desk person after hours or my nurse or anybody like after four we don't talk to each other except for funny memes and stuff or whatever we're just playing around with on our texts, but there is no work related activity that happens that way. And I think like they, they do the same for me. They never call me on vacation. They, never, they don't even, they know I don't have email on vacation. So it's, you know, that respect is there. I think um, respect for your time and you, you know, you've, you've covered this in your, in your, um, in your, my screed. Yeah. The screed that you wrote, <laughs> the, the pay thing for me. one thing I noticed that made me happier was the less of my income that was dependent on a bonus, the better I felt. And that's not for everybody, but I, you know, when I was in private practice, I got paid more than I did here, but I uh, only had a salary. 
I had a salary of like, I don't know, $200,000 or something. And then every three months you got some check, uh, yeah. your distribution check. It was very difficult. It was stressful for me to live like that, to not know what the next quarter held. And um, I was not good at managing that. And that was, a, it sounds like a little thing. It's, it is a very first world 1% problem, but even if you make the same amount of money, but it's a varying amount every three months, it caused the stress in my life that I didn't really like. And, um, and if you're in private practice, that's something you're going to have to get very comfortable with. And that's okay. Most people do. It's just, it's not for everybody, but I remember how much that had. It's a good point. I'm actually the same way. And I would say that I'd go even further and say that like, not only do I not um, want to have a significant component of my salary be related to like, you know, uh, RVUs or volume of, of you know, caseload. Um, uh, I, I also feel I actually like being employed and I would like being employed by a large company because I'm scared of instability. Um, even that, I mean, as, as you know, we don't need to get into it, but even, you know, in a competitive city or competitive market, there's going to be a lot of, a lot of fluctuations of ownership and things like that that happen. So, um, but I think stability over the, uh, over, uh, sorry, let me put it a different way, giving up a ceiling, right. Or lowering my ceiling of my, of what I can make. Yeah. Some stability is that's, what's right for me. Yeah. Right. But I know that there are people out there that really want to have a high ceiling or access to that. And yeah. that's fine. I hope that we get to keep that. I know that that's a little bit under threat with a lot of the policy changes, but, yeah. um, but I, it, exactly like you said, I think it has to be the right thing for you, you know, like, yeah. And I think like, go ahead. Sorry. You go, you go. And as I say, like, I think that, that these, this is just the final point of this that where, where I think are the big things that have made me happier in different positions is um, having ownership of your own schedule. Um, the template given to you by an administrator about this day is for follow-ups, this day is for consults, this day is for sims drives me batty. Uh, like, who are you to tell me what to do with my time and my patient's time? And I, I cannot, I cannot get behind a system like that. I will never work in a system like that again. Um, I know big organizations need it for whatever reason, but it's just not for me. And I found myself being, again, these, these three things that I'm mentioning, these are all like treating you like an adult versus treating you like a child. And I think that, um, that, 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 like not being in charge of my schedule or, or to be told that like, Oh, we don't want to give you a seventh consult slot because that 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 might mean you're working too hard. And it's like, well, I'll, I'll decide that, and I'll let you know when I'm working. Has somebody hard. ever said that in real life? <laughs> okay. yeah, I, yeah. I, I I had a boss that was uh, so lovely and concerned about our work life balance too yeah. much because he 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 didn't really appreciate that everybody has different tolerance for what they want to do or how much work they want to do. And so I, I feel like that works on both ends. Like if I yeah. feel like I'm doing too little or too much, please listen to me, not your template or what a median MGA, MGMA thing tells you what I should be doing. Right. Everybody yeah. is different. I think the that's team too, the team also, you know, just on that line, on yeah. that point, like I, you know, I have um, one of the lessons I learned very early is if you want to work hard and you pack your schedule, you're doing 30 consults a week, your nurse coordinator is doing 30 consults a week yes. and will leave. <laughs> so yeah. I, I, like, I think that was something that I learned very quickly is so make sure when, if you have that autonomy, which we hope you do, right. I think we both agree on that that you you view it as a team and you make sure that if you're building your schedule, 
Yeah. Make sure you check in with your nurse or nurse coordinator or whoever works with you. And, and, and they're down for that too, because they're part of the team. Right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, this, this has to come in conjunction with the team, but it's just a matter of, again, the value of your, your time and how you use it when you're there for that period of time. Like we are, we are not residents anymore. Like we, we, we will learn what's best for us. And rather than being a top down way of doing it to have some input in it will help um, make happier docs, I think in general. So what am I missing here? Like, I think, you know, obviously it's hard to put down on paper what it takes to be happy, but is there anything, I mean, it doesn't seem like anything major, but is there like, is there anything, I mean, I think you, I definitely added some stuff that you were talking about and I moved a couple of things to more prominent positions. I think the autonomy thing is so big. I think I had it as sort of like a little sub note or a footnote of something, but having it, autonomy is so big that it's got to be a big thing for work culture. Like you got to have autonomy, right? I think every physician probably agrees with that. We're highly trained, highly skilled workers and, yeah. and you know, it's important. Well, yeah, I mean, I would, I would add a, a message that um, the great Anthony D'Amico told uh, our residents when I was at UPMC. He visited and talked to faculty and residents and then finally got the faculty out of the room and he talked about happiness. He, he spent some time with that. And his number one thing was to have important relationships in your life, mostly focusing on your partner, but in general, intrapersonal relationships. And I, you know, I remember kind of like liking it, but thinking, oh, what a soft, what a softy thing to say. And like, here we are with like the prostate cancer guru. And we're talking about like finding a girlfriend or whatever, you know, and and I look and I think about like my happiness in my life is associated with work, but I realize I'm much more happier that I have a partner that I love and that that's the goal of the day is to do good work and then get home to her and, and the kids. And I think like everybody knows this and it's, I'm not bringing something novel, but do make time throughout your career for the people in your lives, because then everything will look brighter and happier. And like, you know, if I feel like I had a bad day and I kind of talk it through with her, you know, a lot of times she'll either support me or roll her eyes and be like, oh, come on, man. Like, that's not so bad. Yeah. Like yeah. You, you have it good. And I'll be like, you know what? You're right. I do have it very good. And so it, it, it is really important to have that part of your life. It'll make the rest of the parts of your job better if you have good, really good friends and um, people in your life. Which absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. And I think you, you, so you're, you and your wife, you are already working as a physician. You actually were, you were out of training when you, when you met, right? Yeah. We just met, yeah. in, we met in 2016. You know? Right. So, so I think um, that, you know, what's interesting for me and I, it, just a different perspective on that. We've been together since before medical, actually even since before graduate school for me. Oh, wow. And when I went into medical school, I actually have given this advice to trainees as well that we had a serious discussion about what that's going to mean for my life because, yeah. you know, it, it's, you know, I'm going to be way busier than I was as a PhD student and entering to be a physician, even in a really nice work-life balance position, you're still a very busy worker compared to like other people that work in other fields. Right. Oh yeah. And so she understood that we had a great time of that through medical school and residency. And then when I finished, it became very clear that she was like waiting for the end of residency because in her mind it was going to get better. Yeah. Right. And actually there's that common adage that your first year out is actually busier 
than your last year in residency. And that was very true for me. (laughs) And at one point she was like, what are you doing? Like, when, when are you going to start being like a regular person and not a trainee? And, and it was just, it was a constant struggle. And I think, again, like if I, if I were to run my own life through this little quality of life measure screed that I put out, yeah, I think, I think that it would, I had so much mismatch there. Right. And so you know, again, like I'm, I'm, I'm very happy these days. And it's because there's just, again, it has nothing to do with any specific aspect being better or worse than my last contract, whatever. It's just that my, what I want, what my family wants is, is so much more in line with, um, uh, with all these features, um, now than it, than it was. Yeah. Well, that's good. I mean, I think, I think after these but year or two of doing this, like, I feel like there's such a difference. I, I joke with you all the time on that text thread that like community Matt is so much funnier. You're, you're oh. <laughs> on text. And like, I did not catch that. I think in the first year, I mean, you know, whatever we made jokes and stuff, but you're, you're, yeah, I mean, it's a different person. It's a right? different person. Yeah. I mean, this it's your life, right? So I think if your work and you're in the outside of work is, is not matched well. And you're having all these tensions. It's going to change your personality and how you feel and, and make, I, I genuinely was a, was a different person. And again, it has nothing to do with that job. It's, it's everything to do with that job and how it matched with my priorities. Right. And so if you have different priorities, it's a totally different story. That's what, yeah. 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 Well, that, I, this is good. I really appreciate you doing this with me because I wanted to write this out. I think I am going to release it. I, I haven't seen anyone talk about this from a high level of being happy versus just like evaluating the technical components of a job. Yeah. Um, those resources are really important, but I I sort of made myself something I wish I had at the beginning. I don't know if, if you feel like it would be helpful. I first. think so. I think it would. But the thing is, I don't think 30-year-old someone would have looked at it or cared too much, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe they would have, maybe a smart PGI four or five will value it, but I think a lot will gloss over it and be like, you know what? I know what I want. And like, they don't really think through it necessarily. Some do, but yeah. getting yeah. Idea, getting at me and you, we, we probably would have just been like, ah, whatever this old guy's talking and I'm kind of going to gloss. You know, over. you're so right about that. I was, <laughs> I was very naive back when, you know, I, so I had like ideas. I kind of knew that like when you're in an academic job that you like have to do research kind of around your clinic and at nights and stuff. But I don't think I had a real appreciation for what that really meant. And, yeah. and like, and, and so um, you are right. I guess maybe I can release it in the hope that maybe if it helps one person find their happiness. Yeah. It's worth. <laughs> yeah. 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 Cool. Uh, well, All right, man. Well, have a good rest of your day and I'll yeah. get this out. Be good. Yeah. Hey, raise, raise a glass for Jerry Springer. uh... Yes. I was just talking about, you know, I'm from Chicago. I've been to a taping. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. uh, It's, it's what you would expect. (laughs) It was, it was very, um, it was a unique kind of experience. I I think our show never aired. They like tell you if it airs, I think they Uh don't air some of them, but uh, that guy, have you real quick, have you seen on Hulu? There's this documentary series that's called the dark nineties. No, Um, I heard about it. I didn't see it. They, so they have a, uh, they have an episode on like talk shows, basically like, you know, you know, how like nineties was like the heyday of like all those talk shows that they would have on TV. And they talked about Jerry Springer. It was quite innovative in what they had done and their approach of like doing crazy trashy TV was like a very new thing. And, and it yeah. was very popular. Um, and so I remember watching that and yeah, Jerry Springer is a kind of a Chicago guy in a way. And so Tulane uh, grad. 
Tulane grad. He's from, he was the mayor of Cincinnati, right? Yeah, mayor of Cincinnati. He should, I, I know his shows were ridiculous, but he seemed like a decent person. I don't know. He's just like a very like, oh, shuck sort of guy. And He was. Uh, no, in the show, I mean, people should watch it because the show was ridiculous, but it was very innovative. And remember that like they make TV to make money, right? And yeah. it's super popular. He's a very smart guy. And I think his ideas were very creative. And so I think it's, it's just an interesting take on the show. So yeah. Jerry, Jerry. Okay. <laughs> All right. I'm going to go to my next, on my admin day here, I'm going to go to my next meeting. <laughs> All right. Thanks for that, man.